Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, the audio companion to the Root Simple blog where we cover DIY living. In episode four, we'll discuss the ethics of eggs, solar dehydrators, and we'll answer a reader question about our wood-fired adobe oven. I'm Eric Knudsen, a.k.a. Mr. Homegrown. I'm joined today by my co-conspirator, Kelly Coyne, a.k.a. Mrs. Homegrown, who is a little crabby today. Hey! <laughs> Keep the fourth wall up. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, shall we jump right into the uh, controversy of the week? Usually I'm the one with the controversial posts, and, decided, and this, this week, for some reason, Kelly decided to jump into the fray with a post on... Well, how would you describe it? I called it the ethics of eggs, but that's not exactly what it was. What prompted you to write this post? We get a lot of mail in the Root Simple mailbox from marketers and people wanting us to promote uh, their ideas or products and that kind of stuff. We get a lot of that, and I usually um, take care of all that as part of my team duties. And I got this strange one, which... It was basically claiming that Hellman's and Best Foods mayonnaise were killing baby chicks to make mayonnaise. It was a it was a campaign by a, a company called Farm Forward, and well, oh, they I are they are killing chicks to make mayonnaise. Well, right? chicks are killed to make mayonnaise. I don't know that Hellman's and Best Foods are um, are killing the little baby chicks themselves. I mean, I wonder. Do I'm, I'm not sure how uh, industrial operations on that scale work if they have their own egg operations that they source from or if they're buying their eggs from outside purveyors. Well, I suspect they're contracting with, with industrial egg production operations. Right. And, and in effect, a, chicks are being killed yes, to make mayonnaise, so that, that are, is correct. Chicks, well, chicks are killed to make mayonnaise, but chicks are killed to make birthday cakes. Chicks are killed to make your omelet. Chicks are killed to make pharmaceuticals. Chicks are killed to make pet food. Chicks are killed to uh, allow your local Greasy Spoon Diner to operate. I mean, where do you, where do you uh, end that finger pointing, and why would you point your finger specifically at mayonnaise, of all things? I think they would say they're trying to make a point uh, and that by doing this campaign, they'll raise awareness of the problem in general. And that would probably be what, the, what Farm Forward would, would say, I, I would suspect. Yeah, I would suspect. It's, it's an interesting – I mean, obviously, the, the intelligent consumer will go, huh, chicks are killed to make my mayo? Well, does that mean chicks are killed to make my pancakes? You know, you can, you can make that jump in their materials – on the website associated with this campaign, um, I didn't see any, you know, any verbiage about, you know, it doesn't end with mayonnaise. You know, the eggs, this is a problem across the board. It didn't have any of that, that kind of, it was very, very focused on the mayonnaise, which just struck me as a little odd. I don't disagree with the point. The point is, and maybe we should backtrack for people who don't know this, is that when they're, when laying hens are bred. They are not, you know, bred in fluffy little nests in barns like we would like to imagine them. They're, they're bred in factories. These eggs are hatched in factories. And we are only interested in the hens or the, the, the female chicks as they come out of the egg. 
the laying hens are specific. There's several specific breeds of chicken that are bred to produce eggs like crazy. They are not bred to have good meat, and so the male males of those of those of that breed are valueless to us essentially. So, as the after the little um, chicks hatch, they are sexed. I think they just roll down a conveyor belt, and expert sexers sex them. And sexing chickens is a fascinating side um, side topic. It's not simple. It's not like sexing a puppy. It's, it's, they have to be trained. It's a skilled job. It's an art. It's an art. Um, but they, um, but they're good at it. It's, uh, they, they're at least like 95% accurate, but the sexers at that point, you know, sex the females and the, they're set in the keep pile and the males are put in the discard pile. And one way or another, those, those male chicks are all destroyed because there's no point to feeding them and raising them. So it is extraordinarily wasteful. I, I think it's it's sinful um, to bring life into the world like that and then discard it immediately. I people uh, might call me a hypocrite for being okay with bringing that life into the world and letting it um, run around in the sunshine for three months or so until it's of eating size, and then you kill it and then you eat it. But for me, that seems much better um, than being killed right out of the shell. But that ideal alternative is also very expensive, which is why it's not done by the major producers. Yes, it's expensive. And nobody, uh, the point is that nobody, well, not, well, not nobody, there's a backyard, backyard people can raise chickens the old fashioned way. And I mean, the old fashioned way, I mean, you have well, hens and, and small farms and small, too. very small farms. I mean, at a certain point with the scale, I don't, I think they have to give that up because the margins in the, in the egg and chicken um, the industry are, are, are just razor thin, so they have to cut costs wherever they can. But the old-fashioned way, wherein you have you have hens, you have a rooster, you um, allow some of the hens' fertilized eggs to hatch every year, and then you um, let all of the chicks live. You watch the boys, the boys, and some of the girls end up in in um, the stove eventually. And the best of the laying hens and maybe the best of the males um, get kept for as roosters, as future breeding stock, and as laying hens. Um, and that's that's the traditional old-fashioned way to keep hens, but that it's not done anywhere except for backyards, like we're saying, or very small farms. So it's it's somewhat quixotic to be demanding that Hellman's and Best Foods change their ways. I don't think it's actually possible with the system as it is now to to um, source eggs humanely, at least without the chick murder. I mean, there's a lot of levels of chicken cruelty that you can focus on and explore. You know, are they are they in battery cages? Are they pasture raised? Uh, how are they slaughtered? There's there's so many questions to ask about about the poultry industry. But the chicks, the, the killing the little baby boy chicks at the beginning is probably one of the le- less known aspects of of the egg industry. And it is one of the darker things. But it's also, I think, one of the least tractable problems to solve. So I'm not sure what, if, if this campaign gets huge and, and Best Foods and Hellman's are swamped with letters demanding that they stop killing the baby chicks to make their mayonnaise, I'm not sure what they're options are they would um, need to they could reformulate into a vegan formula but there's already vegan mayonnaise so why would they do that 
I, I'm not, certainly I'm not an ag expert and I don't know, but I'm a little dubious. I would like to see the poultry industry reformed across the board. I don't know if it's possible. So in the post, my point was just that we need to look to ourselves like, why do we finger point? Why are we encouraged by activist groups to finger point against specific corporations for a problem that we are all knee deep in? You know, like I said at the beginning, you know, eggs are not only used in mayonnaise, they're used in almost everything. And so if you are not a strict vegan, avoiding eggs in all of your products, then you have the baby chicks, the baby chicks are on your head too. So what are you going to do about that? If it bothers you, how are you going to address that question. And you're saying it's through personal responsibility. Well, that's what I'm saying, personal responsibility instead of finger pointing. Like, what is the good of pointing at Hellman's mayonnaise and calling them chick murderers when I am a chick murderer? Well, but what about the idea of both finger pointing and personal responsibility? In other words, there's a place for activism and there's also a place for personal responsibility. I think, I mean, it's true. I mean, there are places where I think activism works very well, but there's also places where it just sort of seems to feed itself and it doesn't move anywhere. And, and ultimately, the greatest pressure we bring to bear on industry is our own personal choices. If people stop buying their products because they're making their own mayonnaise at home, then they should think about like how they're making their mayonnaise. I, I will say myself, I think one of my problems with this particular set of activists is that if you really dig down into the material, they don't believe that human beings should keep farm animals at all, even small producers. And I think in this case, the finger pointing is coming from a pretty extreme place uh, that maybe we'd be better off if, if we were dealing with a set of activists that was pointing out the cruelty of industrial agriculture and offering a alternative in terms of maybe a more traditional farm, uh, a farm that our grandparents would have recognized, rather than this idea that agriculture shouldn't exist with animals at all, which if you, again, if you really look at what this group advocates, that's what they think. I think that might be at the heart of the um, the campaign because that's what made me scratch my head about the anti-Mayo campaign is that there isn't really any answer. Hellman's and Best Food cannot source millions of pasture-raised, naturally-raised eggs, and they're not going to change their formula because they already have competitors who are selling that product. So there actually is no solution um, except for perhaps just giving up, like just giving up on animal products, which, as you said, I think that's kind of the end game is to give up on them. And I also believe that the um, small organic farm is is so important to our future in terms of uh, the food shed and in terms of the environment, in terms of health. And small farms need animals. It's a symbiotic system, and they need to be there. And I think we can work in right relationship with the animals and everything will be okay. I think um, in terms of personal responsibility, I actually feel better about this last batch of chickens that we have. The first batch of chickens we had came from a hatchery. So we killed baby chicks. Essentially the same thing. This, <laughs> yeah. The second batch came from a friend of ours who breeds chickens. Not the natural way. And then he eats the, the roosters. Yeah. And I felt a lot better about this batch of chickens. Actually, it's also... Uh, a lot nicer group of chickens. Uh, oh, I lot, liked our first group of they were, but this, this batch, though, is 
more um, resilient and less, um, they don't squabble with each other as much. They're actually really, really nice batch of chickens and yeah, very they, productive too. Mm-hmm. Uh, a side benefit of, of finding, um, finding someone who's breeding chickens the old-fashioned way. And it's hard. I, that's what I said in my post. This is not easy. Like if you're going to make a stand on this issue you have to be prepared to work. You really need to work your contacts, your social network, like just ask around, ask around, ask around. You should be able to find somebody who's raising chickens in their backyard. We, um, did, we probably didn't know Craig and Gary when we got our first batch of chickens. We probably met them right after that. I think so, yeah. You otherwise know, we would have. Otherwise, we, yeah. But so, so and sometimes you just do the best you can. Like we, we got our first batch of chickens. Yes, probably the, you know, the, uh, the boy, I don't know, the, the chicks, the boy chicks from siblings of our first batch of chickens may or may not have been thrown in the dumpster. Hard, hard to say. Because they were sort of dual purpose, so they might have gone to people who wanted meat chickens. I don't know. But, you know, maybe there's a little cloud hanging over that. But still, we got hens and we had our own eggs free of guilt, um, most of the guilt. So that's that's good. And that's, that's more than most folks do. And, you know, I think you have to just do what you can. And then as we got more um, linked into the system here, we, we, we met Craig and Gary, and then we were able to do even better by sourcing our next group of hens from backyard farmers instead of from a hatchery. But I think you always just do as much as you can do at the moment and then have faith that in the future you can do even better. So I got, I got a comment on the post of the woman saying, well, I am already buying my eggs from... Uh, you know, fairly small farm that has has good practices. They're pasture raised. You know, they spend all day outside. You know, it sounded like a good operation, but she didn't know and suspected that they didn't um, have like natural breeding systems there, so that there there were probably you know dead male baby chicks in the background there somewhere. And uh, she was like, is that enough? Now I feel bad. And I'm like, well, you're already doing so much. You're paying a premium to buy these pasture-raised eggs. Uh, You are supporting your family's health because those eggs are healthier. You're supporting a farm that's doing right by its animals. It's doing the best it can. It might not be able to afford to um, breed its chickens the old-fashioned way, but it is at least raising its chickens in a, in a fair way. And so it's doing as much as it can too. So we all have to just do as much as we can at the moment and have faith that even if that's not perfect, we can do better down the road. Our second topic today is about solar food dehydrators. A post I wrote earlier this week was about uh, a couple of different solar dehydrator models and which one works best. Okay. So I've got some questions for you. I mean, the first of all is why do we need a machine to dehydrate our food anyway? Can't we just lay it out? If you live in a desert climate with low humidity, you can indeed just put your food on trays and cover it with something that'll keep the insects away and Bob's your uncle, of course. But in a climate with even just a little bit of humidity, and we're in a pretty dry place here in Los Angeles, but we're we're near the ocean, and that just that alone is enough to raise the humidity enough so that it's difficult to dry food in the air. Some parts of Southern California, again, if you're out in the desert, maybe parts of the San Fernando Valley might work. But here where we are, we need some way to lower the humidity in the dehydrator. 
And one of the ways you lower, uh, lower humidity is by air movement. And the particular kind of food, solar food dehydrator that I built is called the Appalachian Food Dehydrator. And it's a very simple device. It has a heat collector at the bottom that collects the heat of the sun via a kind of glassed-in box and a it, black screen. Can I interrupt to say it looks like a pinball machine? If it looks like a very to, ugly pinball machine. If someone's trying to imagine it, you know where the uh, where the pinball action would happen is is the collector box. So that that large kind of semi-horizontal uh, box collects the light, and then where the score would be on the pinball machine is where the uh, food trays are. Right. So the heat rises up through that box and that the motion of the air rising upwards is enough to lower the humidity and make the dehydration of of fruits and vegetables possible. And that's the wonder of the Appalachian food dryer. So there's the Appalachian dehydrator. Is there another kind of dehydrator? The post I did was uh, a link actually to the creator of the Appalachian food dehydrator who works at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. And he did a study comparing his design, the Appalachian dehydrator, to two other solar dehydrators, one called the Brace dehydrator and the other called the Poisson, which I think means fish in French. I'm not sure why it's called the Poisson dehydrator. Maybe that's named after someone. Anyways... um, in terms of solar dehydrators, there's actually two kinds of solar dehydrators. One is the indirect type, which is what I just described, where there's a solar collector and the heat is uh, taken up into a separate box. Uh, and in effect, the, what you're trying to dehydrate is not exposed directly to the sun. The other type of solar dehydrator is a direct dehydrator. And basically, those are just a glass box with some vents in them. And the food sits in the glass box and is struck by the rays of the sun. Is there a degradation of nutrients from the solar radiation, you know, if if they're baking in the sun like that? That's one of the issues that uh, Scanlon, again, the the creator of the Appalachian dehydrator, was concerned about, both... nutritional degradation and also kind of aesthetic degradation you get when you have uh, fruit or, or vegetables exposed to sun in a dehydrator and also the the efficiency of design the efficiency was actually mainly what he was looking at when he was studying in other words how much water is removed from the product you're trying to dehydrate that's the efficiency of the product uh, rather of the, of the of the dehydrator and according to his research, while well, he proved his own design is better than these other two designs in terms of removing uh, water. The Poisson dehydrator, by the way, is, is another indirect dehydrator. Um, the fruit or vegetables are not exposed to UV light, and it's kind of hard to describe this thing. It's, it's a barrel-shaped device with the food sitting within a barrel within another um, barrel that's clear, and the heat of the sun comes into it, and it dehydrates indirectly. It's not exposed directly, but it doesn't have the... The nice thing with that Appalachian design is that you get more airflow in it, and I think that's what makes it more efficient than the Poisson dehydrator, and also more efficient than the direct solar dehydrator. 
Now, weren't there some comments on your post where people were dubious about using the Appalachian dehydrator in humid climates? Yeah, and um, I, it was someone actually in the Midwest, and I can't speak, you know, and I think they had a design, too, that they really liked, and I would say, you know, whatever works, obviously, whatever works for you, go go for that. I will say, though, that Scanlon was trying to directly, direct, um, uh, he was trying to address that with the Appalachian dehydrator design, because if I'm not mistaken, it's also pretty humid in Appalachia. And again, to lower humidity, you need to get that airflow going. And that's what, what his design does. And I think uh, it would work, actually, in a fairly humid climate. Now, you can build your own Appalachian dehydrator. We y- did. Yeah. You did. Right. I watched. Right. I, I built it. And the nice thing, cool thing, is that um, Scanlon has posted his design uh, free plans for the design for free. Um, and it used to be in a back issue of uh, a solar power magazine, and it, it disappeared from the Internet for a while. I'm not sure why, uh, but it's back. And there's an article uh, in Mother Earth News, which we'll link to in the show notes and is on our blog, that has a really nice in-depth uh, description of how to build it as, as, as well as plans too, uh, and totally free. Um, the Appalachian dryer will cost you about $200 to build it if you get all new materials at Home Depot. If you're able to scavenge some plywood somewhere, you might be able to do it cheaper. It wasn't that hard to do. Uh, just, you know, cutting some, if you can cut plywood and drill it together, uh, you're, you're good to go. Okay, well then, obviously one of the options for in dehydration is the electric dehydrators, like the uh, like the Excalibur Mega dehydrator. What are the advantages and disadvantages of both? Well, the Excalibur dehydrator is the Rolls Royce of electric dehydrators. Uh, we have one on loan occasionally from the Extension Service when I'm in my role as Master Food Preserver. We borrow that, um, and it's great. But um, it is loud. It's well. Well, it's not loud. Yeah. It's it's like that noise that a microwave makes, except it never stops. And I find that it makes me edgy. Uh, I like I for, I I forget that it's going, and then I wonder why I'm edgy, and then I realize it's because there's this this fan electric noise that just goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, I think i've heard some of the newer models are quieter and then the other thing i would say is with an electric dehydrator i might think about putting it in the garage Mm -hmm. if you can or in a spare room so you don't have that sound running all the time also i should take a pot shot at the cheapy you know sort of ronco dehydrators although some some people swear by those and i know some people who work with them and they're fine i i was given a cheapy one and it cooked the food rather than dehydrated it I thought the results from the Excalibur were, and actually the Appalachian dryer, were a lot better than than those cheapy ones. The problem with the Appalachian dryer and with solar dryers that I have is that you have to bring the food in at night. And for whatever reason, I always forget to do that at the mm. end of the day. And if you if you don't bring the food in, it gets moldy because it rehydrates in the middle of the night. And with a solar dehydrator, it can take 
two or three days to dehydrate something like a tomato. And you have to remember to bring it in every evening and take it out in the morning. The other tricky thing is um, here in L.A., we never know if there's going to be a sudden marine layer. In other words, the clouds are going to come in uh, even in the middle of the summertime. And that's enough to screw things up, too. You need to dehydrate something like tomatoes. You need two or three sunny days for it to work. Well, that's the other disadvantage. The <laughs> advantage, obviously, is that you're not using a lot of electrical power, which you use with those with an electric dehydrator. An electric dehydrator, you're running for a day or two or three uh, in and order for it to work. And it's quiet. Um, you can also, well, and it's quiet, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Not bothering you. Right. Uh, you can also use an oven sometimes with the door cracked open if you have a pilot light. Um, or some new ovens actually come with a dehydrator setting, I've heard, and I haven't fooled around with that. Our oven does not have a pilot light, and I believe we tried it in the past, and it was a disaster it because it, the oven doesn't, doesn't run low enough in order to dehydrate food. So for us, it's either the electric dehydrator or the Appalachian dehydrator. I just had a funny memory. I was laughing to myself because I had forgotten what it would be like when we would bring tomatoes in from the Appalachian when we had our dog, Spike. And we would have all these trays of tomatoes that we'd have to balance out, like on the kitchen table or something. And he loved tomatoes. And then he would get into the tomatoes and eat them off the screens overnight. Yeah, yeah, so another we, we, another problem. Just another problem. More more ways to lose your tomatoes. If it's not mold, it's a Doberman. Something's going to get your tomatoes. The oh, also, oh, oh yes. yeah. Well, I just remembered talking about problems um, again with the uh, solar dehydration. I think it's actually true for any dehydration, but especially with the solar, when the food is out there for three days in nature, essentially, there is the possibility that bugs are going to get in there. Flies will land on something. There is. However, if you screen off the solar dehydrator correctly, that's less of a problem. But I know where you're going with this. Yeah, but also it could happen when you take them in at night and they're laying on your kitchen counter and then the fly lands on it and drops its eggs because you can can have um, insect problems with your dehydrated food unless you freeze it after you're done dehydrating it to kill any eggs that might have gotten in there. I'll point out we actually had that problem with food dehydrated indoors too because it only takes one insect to lay an egg and then you put all of the tomatoes into one jar and then you have a pantry moth uh, feeding station. No, it's just awful. It's just, I mean, I, I remember the first time it happened to us. We we had painstakingly dried tons of tomatoes, put them all in one big jar. Another and, mistake, actually. Yes, Separated out into I think, several yeah, jars. I think putting, yes, several jars uh, helps you hedge your bets. Uh, but some pantry moth had laid an egg somewhere along the way. And I, we had put the jar in the back of the cupboard to use later on when the fresh tomatoes had run out. And I go to pull out the jar all happy at the thought of my tomatoes, which took hours and hours and hours and hours to dry. And the jar was half full of maggots. It was like a David Cronenberg movie. It was awful. So bad. Indeed. But we're talking people out of it. No, we're Uh, not. No, no. You just have to be careful. I mean, you're going to run into this kind of stuff in the food preservation world, in the drying world. So just be careful. It takes about three days to be sure that all the leggies are dead. So after you've dehydrated things, pack them in plastic or something and stick them in the freezer for three days. And then you'll know that nothing is going to hatch and surprise you later. A last 
uh, disadvantage to the Appalachian Dry I forgot to mention is that they're they're rather large. And you may want, if you build one, you may want to consider putting it on wheels and having a place to store it for the winter if you're in a cold place. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, you could also build a half-size version of it. You might want to think about that, too. You'll be able to dehydrate less food, but then you have less of a problem storing the dehydrator itself. Ours, oddly enough, lives on top of the garage roof, which is at street level, and um it's a curiosity in the neighborhood. People actually have asked me what it is. I think it's a birdhouse or something. We actually met our neighbor, Laura, who's become a good friend because she spotted the Appalachian dehydrator on top of the roof. Um, and I just painted it with exterior paint, so it kind of lives outside. Needs a, needs a new coat of paint, though, I have mm, to say. It's looking so it'll a little, be a little seedy. shabby. Yeah. Um, and I, we don't have the Excalibur dehydrator right now, so I think we will be using the solar dehydrator this summer, unlike last summer where we lazily used the Excalibur. And it is convenient. Gosh, the electric dehydrators are really convenient. You know, the Excalibur has, I don't know, like 10 trays or something, and you can just load it up with everything and turn it on and forget about it. it it's easy. It is easy. Use. So yeah. if you don't... If you want to dehydrate, but you're not sure, you know, it depends on how, how strong your DIY spirit is. There's, there's nothing wrong with an electric one. Exactly. Our listener question this week comes from Ed in Los Angeles via email. And Ed says, first, thanks for the great blog, which I've followed for many years now. I've enjoyed your first two podcasts as well. Thanks, Ed. Your recent reviews of the Josie Baker book has prompted me to add it to my wish list and also got me to thinking about bread baking in general. I know you work with a group to have a clay oven built in your backyard, and I would love to hear your comments about how you've put the oven to use, pros and cons, and what breads you still bake in the kitchen and which ones you do outside. Thanks, Ed, for the compliment. Um, yeah, we had a, a a workshop here led by Kurt Gardella, who's an adobe builder who splits his time between New Mexico and Germany, and Ben Loescher, who is a local architect who's also building one of the first adobe structures in many, many years here in Southern California uh, and getting permits for it. That's quite an accomplishment. And they were nice enough to run a workshop in our backyard, and we had a couple of people come I and Ben and a few other people helped me dig a giant hole in the backyard uh, down into the clay level. We have a lot of clay here. And I use that to make adobe, traditional adobe bricks, which I think are something like 10 by 14 by 3 inches, something like that, 4 inches. And uh, I made about 100 adobe bricks, uh, air-dried them in the sun, and we use that to build the base of the adobe oven at the workshop that, that Kurt and Ben led. And then on top of that base, we put some normal bricks that form the hearth of the oven. And on top of that, everyone helped build kind of like a sandcastle dome. And in the course of the, I think it was three days it took to build the oven with, with a small group of people, we then formed a dome over the sand form um, and create a dome, out which is the, uh, out of cob, out of the same material that I made the adobe bricks from, which again was clay from the yard, sand from a brickyard, and straw. From the chicken coop. From the chicken coop. Well, no, we actually, fresh straw for that. That was <laughs> chopped and added. We had to chop up all the straw with the machetes. And I've got to say, the oven is really, really fantastic. 
Um, but we mostly use it for pizza parties. The pizza out of it is really, really, really good. When it comes to making bread, if I'm just making one loaf of bread for around the house, one or two loaves of bread, it doesn't make sense to fire a wood oven for four hours, which is what it would take to, to do bread at least, four, maybe five hours of, of burning wood to make two loaves of bread. But for a pizza party, it's great because it's this nice, you know, kind of focus for the party. Everyone's kind of gathered around the oven and you can't make good pizza in a home oven easily. You can't get the temperatures you can get with the, with the, with the wood fire. Uh, that said, I would like to do some bread baking in it. It would make most sense to bake a bunch of bread at a time. Um, ideally, you would have, first you'd make pizza, because uh, you, you basically what you do is you fire the oven, uh, and after about two hours of burning, you're good for pizza. And you keep What's the, the fire. What's the temperature like after pizza temperature is what? I like it to be down around. I mean, it goes up to about a thousand, and then I let it come down to maybe six hundred, seven hundred for the pizza, with the fire still burning in the back. And you keep the fire burning. You can make an endless amount, however many pieces you want. We usually make a bunch for the party. We eat way too much pizza. I have extra dough left over, and then I make um, pizza that we freeze, which is great, actually. Perfect frozen pizza. You just make a pizza and then stick it in the freezer. Um, after pizza, you could make bread. I'm usually too exhausted after making all the pizzas to make bread, but that would be the time when you would take the fire out of the oven put the dough in, steam it a bit in there with a hose, and then plug up the oven. And you bake just with the heat from the basically stored in the thermal mass of the, of the adobe to bake your, your bread. After that point, we have a cat on the table now here. <laughs> uh, after that point, you, would, you could make casseroles or things like that as the oven temperature comes down. That would be the ideal way to do it. That said, we haven't yet... We haven't yet done that, I hate to say. It's mostly been pizza parties. I've tried a loaf or two, but the other thing is you have to get the hang of the heat of the oven, too, for bread baking. It's going to take some trial and error to get the hang of it. It's much easier to bake bread inside in a gas-fired oven because you just turn it on, preheat it, and as long as your oven is reasonably accurate with its temperature, um, you know, that's easy to do. Wood, wood fired oven is a little trickier to do it. Great again for making a lot of bread because, you know, I, I think I could make probably six loaves easily in the, the size oven that we have, which, which I think it's about four foot, something like that radius or di uh, diameter rather. Um, it would be good then for baking parties. Like if you knew a lot of bread bakers, you know, you say, hey, everybody make your dough and then come over to our house and we'll bake it all together. Yeah, the, the L.A. Bread Bakers, which I co-founded with, with Mark Stambler, we built an oven in a community garden, and we've done that too. So it becomes sort of a communal event where a bunch of people come over and, and bake their bread. Uh, we also have a member of our group, Michael O'Malley, who built a truly impressive mobile brick oven that he can tow around. And we've also done that too. We've invited people to come to events and to, to bake bread as a group. Um, 
And, you know, if, if you want to get real serious about your bread baking, and it is one of the, th- the things that, thanks to the cottage food bill in California and many other states that have cottage food bills, you could start a little business baking bread and reselling it if you wanted to make uh, bread in, in large quantities. I'll just say uh, in conclusion that uh, I really love this oven, and uh, I think it's a really great focus point for a patio that we have, and it really makes for a nice party gathering spot. And for me, that's its primary use rather than as a day-to-day oven. It is a, it's a nice thing. There's fancier ovens out there. Sometimes I have oven envy. There's people with like ash collectors and spaces underneath the oven for their firewood and this and that. Ours is probably like the most basic. It's a very primitive oven, really. It's real primitive in a good way. Like it's elegant in its simplicity and inexpensive. And, the and, only th- yeah, yeah the only thing I had to buy was the sand, and that was mostly the delivery charge. Yeah. If you had a truck, you could you know get your sand yourself for sixty bucks or something like that. Yeah. It, yeah, it didn't cost hardly anything. It was like 160 bucks because the delivery charge was $100, <laughs> um, and it was very, very inexpensive to do. But it's nice. Really nice. Well, anything else, Kelly, this week? Uh, we, will, we will have some guests on soon. Actually, if you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, uh, drop, us, drop us a line. Uh, if you have a reader question, also you can drop us a line. Uh, you can call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. You can follow our blog at rootsimple.com. We are Rootsimple on Twitter, and you can friend me on Facebook. Uh, oh, hey. Oh, well, and hey, hey, yes. Well, just this, just yesterday, I started an Instagram account. So there's not much to look at yet, but we are Rootsimple on Instagram. There you go. Watch us on Instagram. We are so happy. Oh, yeah. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶